Good morning, everybody. My name is John Castle, and uh, my wife, Krista, and I have been uh, members of LCC for almost three years now, and uh, we're cell group uh, leaders, and usually I'm back there uh, behind a keyboard, but um, uh, I got moved up, I guess, but uh, so tonight, today I'm up here. So I get the privilege of wrapping up this series in Acts, and um, if you want to go ahead and uh, turn to Acts 27 right now. That's where we're going to be most of the morning this morning. And so this section of Acts is the exciting conclusion of everything that we've talked about up until this time for the last four months. This is like, for you binge watchers out there, this is like the big season finale, okay? And it is really exciting. There's so much going on. There is this big adventure and there is disaster and calamity, and there's political intrigue, and there's power struggles, and there's miracles, and spoiler alert, everybody lives in the end. So, um, but also, it's the final chapter of an historical account by the Apostle Luke who, um, uh, that tells this story about how God takes this ragtag group of 120 followers of Jesus and over a period of almost 30 years or so, uh, takes his gospel, empowered through the Holy Spirit, and moves it out to literally the ends of the earth. If you'll remember, back in Acts 1, when Jesus was with, still with the apostles, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So this morning we get to see that come to fruition. God's gospel is unstoppable. And uh, so we can't cover all two chapters this morning. I don't think you want to watch me read that much. Uh, but what we're going to do is skim some sections, and then we'll dive down into a couple sections that, that really uh, pertain to us. But I do want to encourage you, you know, in the next week or so, if you haven't done it lately, just go back and read Acts 27 and 28. And uh, I think you'll enjoy it, or maybe in your, in your cell groups this week, do it then. So what I'm going to do, though, right now is my version of previously on Acts. So, yes, there's a map. So, well, it's a story of a voyage, so we've got to have a map, right? Um, and uh, I think Tom has map envy because mine has gradients and everything in it. But um, so if you remember, Paul goes to Jerusalem, right? And he went there despite all the well-meaning Holy Spirit-led warnings of his friends, but he knew he was called to go there. And so you see Jerusalem on the bottom right of the map, and then ultimately he's going to go to Rome, Italy, which is on the top left. So this section of Acts is about this journey. And uh, so sure enough, he goes to Jerusalem, the mob rises up against him, and he goes before the Jewish high council. And the council is divided, and so there's this plot to kill Paul. And, but Paul's not worried because God had told him, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. And so he's sure that he's going to get there. So he, they take him up to Caesarea, which is this town a little bit north, and he, there he appears between, before Felix and Festus and King Agrippa, as Tom talked about last week. But he had appealed to have his case heard before Caesar. And that grant is, uh, wish is granted, and so he's off to Italy. But not first without a quick stop in Sidon to visit some friends, some interesting little detail there. And then they're off once again. And so they sail north 
of this island of Cyprus because the winds were against him. And so this is an omen of the dangers that's going to ultimately, uh, uh, that this crew is ultimately going to face. And so they're losing time over the course of this journey. And they stop in this town or this port called Myra. And in Myra, the centurion or the soldier, his name was Julius, that was guarding Paul, uh, and he's in charge of the ship. So he puts them on a new ship. And so they get on this huge Egyptian grain ship that I think it, they, it says it, it, it carries like 2,600 tons of grain and 275 men. Back then, that was, a big, that, was a, that was a big ship. And a lot of detail there, but, you know, it's a shipwreck story, so the ship matters, right? So, um, uh, so they take off from Myra, and again, they have really slow sailing. It said, Luke says there were strong headwinds. The wind was against us. And so they stopped at Canitis for a while, at least that's how I say it, and uh, then they decided to go south uh, of the island of Crete because they couldn't just make that line straight across to Italy. And um, so, now it's decision time. You see, this is late in the autumn, season-wise, and you can't sail in the winter. And so what they needed to do was to find a place to stay for the winter, about three months or so, pack up, you know, hunker down there for a while, and then uh, they would pack up in the springtime and, and head back out to, to Italy. But there was this divide and difference of opinion as to whether or not they should just stay in this city of Fair Havens, uh, which they were at. And, but the problem with Fair Havens is it didn't live up to its name. It's not a very fair haven. It's <laughs> apparently a not a good place to, to stay. The sailors wanted to move on to this other port called Phoenix. And I, we don't know why. Maybe they had better port, better restaurants. You know, I don't, who knows? So anyway, um, Paul speaks out at this point for the first time on this cruise. And he says, men, I believe there's trouble ahead if we go on. There's shipwreck, loss of cargo, and danger to our lives as well. And so the centurion, though, was also listening to the captain and the crew of the ship, and they wanted to go on. And so the centurion then sided with the captain, and they decided to go on to Phoenix. And this is where we're going to dive into our story here. So let's go to Acts uh, 27.13, and I'll just read through this. There's a lot here, so just bear with me. Uh, when a light wind began blowing from the south, the sailors thought they could make it. So they pulled up anchor and sailed close to the shore of Crete. But the weather changed abruptly, and a wind of typhoon strength, called a northeaster, burst across the island and blew us out to sea. The sailors couldn't turn the ship into the wind, so they gave up and let it run before the gale. So what's going on here is the wind is so strong that they can't really sail. So they just have to tie up all the sails and let the ship just be pushed downwind by the storm. So we sailed along the sheltered side of a small island named Cauda, where with great difficulty we hoisted aboard the lifeboat being towed behind us. And then the sailors bound ropes around the hull of the ship to strengthen it. They were afraid of being driven across to the sandbars of Sirtis off the African coast, so they lowered the sea anchor to slow the ship and were driven before the wind. So again, they took a little bit of shelter, they shored up the boat, they pulled in the lifeboat, and, but still, once they got back out in the open ocean, it was just too much, and they just had to allow themselves to be pushed along. The next day, as gale force winds continued to batter the ship, 
The crew began throwing the cargo overboard. And the following day, they even took some of the ship's gear and threw it overboard. The terrible storm raged for many days, blotting out the sun and the stars until at last all hope was gone. So many days actually was about 13 to 14 days they were on this ship. Can you imagine? Anybody get seasick? I'm not guaranteeing the historical accuracy of this ship. <laughs> but you get the picture, right? And it's not about the ship. It's really about the storm. And um, but these guys, for two weeks, literally have been driven on this ship, bouncing around with waves pounding, wind nonstop, rain pounding on them, uh, no food, they can't eat, no sun, and they have lost hope. The sailors have just, they're certain that the waves are just going to continue to pound this ship until eventually the ship just breaks apart and disintegrates and sinks into the ocean along with all of them. And they've, they've pretty much given themselves over to this belief. They're in total despair. So this is perplexing to me, this storm, because until now, all of the opposition that Paul has faced, the opposition to the gospel, to the spreading of the gospel, all of that opposition has been man-centered up to this point in Acts. Whether it was the Romans or uh, the Jewish leaders or you know, Alexander the silversmith or all the crazy people in Ephesus, there's always been some kind of, uh, you know, I can, I can attribute that to some kind of sin or evil, you know, and I can wrap my head around that. But the storm's different. It's not man-made. The storm, it's a force of nature. It's, it's literally an act of God. And so that perplexes me. It makes me ask this question. If it's God's plan to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, then why the storm? Did he allow it? Does he cause it? And, or I go so far as, does he, does he care? Does it matter? So we're going to camp out on this point a little bit this morning. Um, the Bible tells us that God is sovereign. And by, when I, by that word, I mean God in control. And um, if he's sovereign, though, it's difficult, I think, for us and hard to accept God's control, God's sovereignty in the midst of storms in our lives. And we all face different kinds of storms. The storm is, this is a Greek wayfaring story by Luke. Luke was a historian, and the Greeks loved their wayfaring sea stories. And so the ship and the storm, the storm actually represents the storms in our lives, the things that happen to us that are out of our control. Maybe we lost a job. Uh, maybe uh, you've got health issues, you've got a diagnosis, uh, or you've lost a loved one. Uh, going through a divorce, or maybe your parents are getting divorced, or you're getting bullied at school. There's all kinds of storms, and I think we can relate to that and connect to that on some level, each of us. And so, and, and, I, and I look at the news this week with what's going on in, in, in Barcelona and Charlottesville, and I just scratch my head. I just don't, I, it's just, it's difficult to understand how God's sovereignty juxtaposes with all of these 
difficult things that are happening. But I think as Christians, I think we need to have an understanding, have a, be able to explain that, or at least to give ourselves an understanding. So it goes um, back to, I think, an age-old question, right? And that is that why would a loving God allow suffering and evil? And this is a question, I think, actually, that keeps a lot of people from believing in God. They have an argument. You'll hear an argument that goes like this. It says, a loving God would not allow evil and suffering. Well, I look around me. All around me, I see evil and suffering. Therefore, that God does not exist. But the problem with that argument is that it's a fallacy. Because what it's saying is that something just dropped off the back. Okay. What it's saying is that I don't see the point, so therefore there is no point. And that is a fallacy. And so we, and this is difficult for some of us, but we, we have to have a category at some point for the fact that God has an infinite wisdom that I cannot understand in my human wisdom. And that's hard for us. When I was nine, I was climbing up the TV antenna uh, next to our house. This was before cable. Um, and I, I missed the, the rung, and I fell and did a somersault and landed, fell a long way, and uh, landed on top of my arm. And I looked up, and my arm literally went whoop, whoop, and, and it horrified me. And uh, especially at nine years old. And I sat in the emergency room for, you know, what seemed like hours. And I'm just sitting here staring at this awful-looking arm. And um, these evil nurses and doctors came in. And one of them grabbed my hand, and the other one grabbed my elbow, and they started pulling. And I was just screaming my head off, going, no, stop, stop. And they said, you know, well, we have to do this, young man, so that your arm can heal properly. And I said, I don't care. Just stop. Make the pain stop now. And... That's the best personal analogy that I can come up with because the, the gap between the wisdom of a doctor and a nine-year-old boy is a pretty significant gap. But the gap between my human wisdom and understanding and God's infinite wisdom and understanding is infinitely higher than that gap. And so that's the best way that I know how to describe it. And so... Therefore, we get into the paradox of the storm. I love paradox statements. You know, less is more. This is the beginning of the end. It's when two things that don't seem to go together actually go together. God is in control, but our choices in the midst of the storm matter. There's God's part, and there's always our part with it, too. And if we look at the sailors, look how they responded to the storm. You know, they... They went into high-function mode, and, which is what they're supposed to do, right? They fortified the ship. They threw everything overboard. But ultimately, they still lost hope because that was all they had to do. And I get the sailors. I understand, that's how I respond to things. I come from a long line of high-functioners. So when I was growing up in my family, if there's something bad going on, do something, whether it's you know, 
cook a meal, mow the grass, paint a room. It didn't matter, but for Pete's sake, man, just be productive. And uh, I learned that as a coping mechanism. And, um, but what would happen eventually, and I do this you know, to this day, eventually I run out of energy and I can't function anymore. And um, so when I'm, when I'm feeling that storm you know, coming at me, I feel I, I get this anxiety and I get this anger, that if, these, these emotions that I don't want to feel that begin to come over me. And I get irritable, and as my family would attest. And uh, so I don't like those feelings, so I do you know, what a lot of us do, and that's to find a way to just avoid those feelings, to numb them. And there's lots of ways to numb bad feelings, right? Alcohol, um, food, distraction, uh, Netflix. Um, and then once I get through that kind of phase, if you will, then there's this feeling of kind of self-pity that you go into where I, I'm just kind of like, uh, I'm the victim. Like, I can't believe that this is happening to me. And um, these are all what I call my ripcord mechanisms so that I don't have to feel the pain or what, what I'm dealing with in the storm. But the problem with the ripcord is that it circumvents what God has for me in the midst of the storm. It keeps me from being able to learn anything, to be able to grow to another level of understanding, to uh, maybe to experience any kind of healing in my life uh, as a result of the storm. My, my, my wife is a marriage counselor, and <clears throat> we were talking about this week, and uh, we're talking about this topic this week. And she told me, she said, you know, I get two kinds of couples that come into my office. The first kind, they come in and they're, they're pointing at each other and they're angry and the focus is on the storm and what the other person has done to them and how they're feeling. And then she says, sometimes I get these couples that come in and their focus is really on God and their questions they're asking are, you know, what is God trying to show me in the midst of this, all this relational pain and everything that I'm going through? And she said, those are the couples that make it. But the first kind of couples usually don't make it. They end up getting divorced. So by contrast, let's look at Paul's response to the storm. So we'll go back into uh, verse 21 through 26. No one had eaten for a long time. Finally, Paul called the crew together and said, Men, you should have listened to me in the first place and not left Crete. You would have avoided all this damage and loss. But take courage. Now, he's not saying, I told you so. Paul, what he's doing here is he's establishing his authority within, on the ship. But take courage. None of you will lose your lives, and even though the ship will go down. For last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me, and he said, Don't be afraid, Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. And what's more, God in his goodness has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. So take courage, for I believe God. For I believe God. It will be just as he said, <laughs> but we'll be shipwrecked on an island. <laughs> I don't know why I laugh every time I read that. You know, be assured, you're going to be okay, we're going to live. Oh yeah, we're going to crash on an island. So, um, but Paul was no stranger to adversity. This guy, he had been whipped, what in, what he, in his words, he had been whipped times without number. Five times he was given 39 lashes. Now, 
I don't know much about historical Roman punishment, but 39 lashes, you get 39 because apparently the 40th one is just too much and you end up, you, you die. And he's gone through this process 39 times. Three times beaten with rods. Once he was stoned with rocks. And this is now his third shipwreck. Three, can, you, can you imagine Paul and God talking that night? And he said, you're going to be shipwrecked. And Paul, I, I just wonder if he was like, another shipwreck? Really? Once again? But he had faced danger from everywhere. You know, outside the church, inside the church. And he was no stranger to it. Here's a verse that we like to throw around a lot. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good. Of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And I don't hear the second half of that as much. But, and I love this verse. It's one of my favorites. But there's two parts to this. And I think it's so easily attributed to just God's part. But really, I mean, what is our part? To love God. So what does that look like? That's, a good, that's another discussion. And what is our calling to God? What is our, the purpose for which God has called us to in his life? And if we are in tune with that, if that is something that we are uh, uh, moving towards, then we know that God causes everything to happen for us, that happens to us to work together for the good. And Paul God's in control of the storm and Paul's actions in the storm mattered. Paul is calm. You know, he's not losing hope. He's not running around. He gives courage and reassurance to the sailors. They're supposed to be the experts. And he actually ministers to them. Later in the story, before the shipwreck, he gives them bread. Now, these are guys that haven't been able to eat because they've been tossed around on the waves for a couple of weeks, but he gives them bread, and they eat it, and they take it, probably because he knew that they were going to need that sustenance in order to make the swim to shore after the ship falls apart uh, on the shore of Malta. He's, he's moved now into a place of authority in the story. So later on in the story, the sailors try to uh, do a mutiny, and he, you know, he realizes they're lowering the lifeboats off the side, and they're going to jump in the lifeboats and escape, because they knew they were getting close enough to the island. They wanted to avoid the shipwreck, and uh, just you know paddle ashore. And uh, Paul told the sailors, "If those guys leave the ship, we're all going to die." And so the sailors cut the lifeboats off, and or excuse me, the soldiers cut the lifeboats, and everybody stayed on board the ship. So Paul now has this position of authority. He has gone over the course of this voyage from prisoner to leader. So what Paul says, though, in verse 23 of our chapter, I think really is the linchpin of this story. Of these two chapters in Acts, this verse is the one that I think really matters most. He says, to God, to whom I belong and to whom I serve. If you look at those words, there's an unmistakable intimacy in those words. Paul knows God. He has had, by this time, almost 30 years of obedience to God's calling and God's purpose. 
asking God, what do you want me to do, God, and being obedient, just like Jerusalem. He knew that his life was probably going to be in danger in going to Jerusalem, but he was obedient to that calling, and he went. And he's done this over and over and over, and each time he's done that, he's seen God's trustworthiness. He's watched God come through for him over and over and over, and so there's this trust relationship, and in that trust relationship is just this intimacy this knowing of God, and that's where that comes from. He knows that he's God's treasured possession, and so he's able to trust in God's goodness in the midst of the storm. I have a, you know people like this? I have a friend like this. I have a friend who's been chronically ill all his life, and uh, I asked him one day, I said, how do you keep your faith? I mean, I watch you struggle, and you, you're in and out of the hospital. You're, you're living by your, your blood count numbers. You're getting poked with needles all the time, and it's just, it just keeps derailing your life and everything you want to do. How do you keep your faith? And he just looked at me, and he said, John, I don't need choice. And I thought, wow, that is, that is a perfect picture of God's power being perfected in humanly weakness. And you know, the, the, here's the interesting thing about these people, this couple, love God more than anybody I know. I mean, they have an infectious, contagious relationship with God. And I just love to be around them. You know, those are the people that I love to hang out with. And one day when that person is in heaven, he's going to look back and there's going to be countless, countless people that he's affected for Jesus. And so that's the kind of maturity that we're talking about here, and that's how, where it comes from. That's how it happened. So this is difficult, though, if you're not a Christian. If you don't know Jesus, this paradox is a little bit difficult to swallow. But here's what I would say. When you're hurting, when you're in pain, what do you want? Do you want things? You know, do you want people to come and say, hey, it's God's will? No. It's saying it's, it's true, it is God's will. But that doesn't explain to me, that doesn't help me to understand the loving nature, the infinite loving nature of God. And so it's God's will is the right answer, but... It's, it's incomplete on its own. But only in Christianity is God with you in the storm. God had a son who was lost. He had a son who was tortured, who was beaten, who was whipped, who was betrayed, who was spit upon, who was mocked, and who was nailed to a cross and left there to hang and die and who even ultimately, in his final breaths, cried out, Why God? So in Christianity, we can say that God is in it. God understands. He knows. And he is in it with us. The author of Hebrews said, Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. And so, how do we know that God has a reason for suffering? Jesus Christ on the cross. That's how we know. 
And we don't know what that reason might be, but we know that it's not indifference. We know that it's not that God doesn't care. So, and we know that we have a part, and that is to focus on God and not focus on the storm. Paul was focused on God. The sailors were focused on the storm. So, I want to tell you about something that happened to me, and I debated about this a little bit, but uh, I have a, a little bit of a storm story myself. Um, when I was young, about the age of eight, uh, I was sexually abused by someone that I loved very much and that I looked up to and idolized. And went on for a few years. And, uh, and I'm telling you this because I want to bring this down to like a real life so we can apply this in our lives. And um, I responded the same way anybody, any victim uh, like that uh, does respond, where you just kind of try to put the whole thing in the corner and forget it and you know, pretend that it never happened and it doesn't exist. But this was a family member, and you know, we were together a couple times a year, and there was always this huge, awkward elephant in the room that was just awful. And um, uh, as I became a teenager, I began to kind of act out and, and rebel and uh, but it, it was a weird kind of rebellious. Like I, I had this fear of authority, anybody in authority over my life, and I became, as I began to grow into adulthood, I, I, I was hyper vigilant to betrayal, and these are all normal things, you know, that happen in this situation. And um, in my late twenties or so, then I began to, uh, I began to get to know God. My wife and I really were, you know, we started going to church. I started reading my Bible. We start, I started praying, and I uh, was in fellowship and was beginning to develop this relationship with God. And God started putting it on my heart that I needed to forgive my abuser. And I pushed this aside and ignored it for probably about five years, a long time. And, but God wouldn't let up on me. And so it came to the point where I finally had to do it. I had no idea why, how, sorry, I knew why. I couldn't figure out how. So I got some outside help, and I was told to write a couple of letters. So I wrote two letters, one which to never be read by anybody, and um, that was a dark experience. But, you know, four pages later, I look up, the paper's wet. And um, so that was good. But the other letter was to that person, and it basically said that since I have claimed God's forgiveness for my sin through Jesus' death on the cross, and you have that available to you also, then God is telling me that I need to forgive you as well. And I sent a letter. And a couple of months later, I saw that person, and um, we talked about it for the first time in 25 years. And uh, I saw a man who believed in Jesus. He was a believer. I was thankful for that. But I saw a man who was broken and frail and who had been crushed under just years of guilt. And he told me things like, you know, it, I, there wasn't a day that had gone by that I haven't thought about that. And, you know, would give his own life just to take that back. And the, this compassion, this feeling of compassion and love for this person just came over me. And so 
that's my example, I think, of, um, well, I know, of how this step of obedience, this scary step of obedience that I took, God used that to give me a better understanding of forgiveness. Uh, I think I'm a much more compassionate person. I've had the opportunity to talk to other people that have been through and had the same experience and ministered to them. That relationship is still not there, but it's getting better. And to be able to give forgiveness to, to, to this person, you know, and maybe give him a little bit of this freedom that he had um, wanted and not been able to experience for 25 years, you know, to unshackle those chains, to be some kind of part of that um, was worth it to me. So that's my story. Uh, this week in cell groups, I want you to talk about your storms. But I want you to talk about your storms with a focus on God and not on the storm, because we can't just talk about the storm all night, because that gets old, right? <laughs> but I want you to do that in cell groups and talk about what is that calling, what is that, that purpose, that, that step of obedience that God is asking you for you to do in the midst of the storm. And if you're not in a cell group, I want to encourage you to check them out. Check one out, because that's what we do here, and that's where, that's where the action is, and it's part of who we are. It's our culture. And um, so we need to get to the rest of the story, though. So we're in this ship. This, uh, the ship is going down, right? And so I'll just give you the high level. Uh, the shipwrecks on Malta, and um, everybody makes it ashore. So remember I said nobody was going to die? So nobody dies. They all make it to, to the shoreline. Paul is bitten by this poisonous snake, and uh, he's supposed to die, but he doesn't die. So they think he's a god. And so he gets, you know, this, he gets this kind of street cred on Malta, and um, he spends the next three months there ministering to people and healing people, and they love him at this point. And so they, uh, they, they give him everything that he needs to complete his voyage to Rome. And so they get back in the ship three months later. They sail up to Rome. And uh, then he spends two years in Rome in prison, chained to a guard. And the last two verses in the end of Acts say this. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so we zoom back up now to the main point of the book of Acts is that God will spread his gospel first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, and throughout the ends of the earth. And it's God's will that this would be done, and it happens. And so we've got these bookend scriptures of Acts 1 that Jesus, where Jesus started, uh, and made that proclamation, and we see that then come to fruition in the end of Acts. And so our beach balls here now have spread all the way out to the ends of the building. And um, so this has been a wonderful series. I've learned a lot. I hope you have too. Uh, what we'd like for you to do is we have a wall out front 
here that the amazingly uh, talented uh, Lee Zeidner and crew have put together. And we'd like for you to jot down some thoughts on what you've learned in this book and put it up there on the wall so that when people come in here, we can read the writing on the wall. I, just, I don't know. I had to put that in there. It was bad. Sorry. So, um, so that's it. That's the, that's the book of Acts. And um, I'm going to do something that I've been wanting to do now for the last four months. Um, and because as I've been sitting down there, I've been thinking about it. I don't have a clip anymore. But uh, I've been just can't, been wanting to do this. So now that I've caused some mayhem, let's pray. And then we've got a couple other songs for you tonight, too, or today. So, Lord, thank you. Um, we thank you for your providence. We thank you for your love for us, God. We know, we know that we really are your true your treasured possession. Um, we don't know why you allow the storms, and we don't know the meaning, but we, knew, we, we just thank you, God, that, that we can have assurance that you're in it with us and that you understand and that you're beside us. God, help us to, to live out those truths. Help us to understand. Help us to keep the focus on you and not on the storm in these times, Lord, and to um, seek your wisdom, seek your calling and your purpose for us, and um, give us the strength, God, to take that step of obedience, whatever that might be for us. God, we, we love you. We thank you. Um, you are worthy of all of our praise and our worship, and we lift all these prayers up in your son Jesus' name. Amen.